take a seat. As Paul says, we're beginning a new series in Matthew chapter 13, looking at some parables of Jesus. So can I ask you to reach for a Bible, open up Matthew chapter 13 in our church Bibles. That'll take you to page 818. And I'll read the first of these parables in verses 1 to 23 of Matthew 13. Before I do, let me lead us in prayer as we ask for God's help to understand and to hear from his word. Our Father God, we've just been singing of that great day uh, on which you will call us to be with you and we will behold the face of the Lord Jesus forever. And so we pray that as we come to gaze at the words of Jesus this morning, you would help us to behold his face with clarity and to hear his words with joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Matthew chapter 13, I'll read verses 1 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Amen. Well, we start this morning, as we often do, with a question. 
It's a simple question. It's also a very painful one. It's a question which has driven me, I'm sure has driven many of us over the years to tear-filled, anguished, on our knees before the Lord prayers. It's the question of why. If the gospel is so powerful, so life-changing, so life-giving, why do people reject it? If I find the words of Jesus so compelling, so full of life and grace and truth, why do so many people around me seem to find them silly or even downright offensive? If I've seen the real power of the gospel at work in my life, why do the people I love continue to ignore it and reject it, no matter how earnestly, no matter how passionately I plead with them or pray for them? Ultimately, why do we routinely find that there are two such extreme reactions to Jesus, a joyful commitment to loving and following him with all of life on the one hand, and on the other, complete, flat-out rejection? Why? It's a simple question. It's a question that I'm sure we will find ourselves mulling over time and again in the Christian life. And if that's the case, then I think it's reassuring to see that that is the question which is hovering over this section of Matthew's gospel that we enter this morning. You see, Matthew's gospel, it begins with this dual statement of who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. In other words, this book is all about demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised king, who will deliver God's people and bring God's promised blessing to bear on God's world. That's who Jesus is. And everything that we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel has been testament to those two facts. This is the son of Abraham. This is the son of David. This is God's chosen one who will bring blessing. And yet, even though everything that we have read so far bears witness to those facts, even still, in the immediately preceding passage to this one, by this point we have seen many people hear Jesus' teaching and despise it. We have seen people see Jesus performing miraculous, wondrous works and hate him. So again, the reader finds himself asking the question, why? If that's the question which is lingering over the chapter as we begin Matthew 13 then, well, we find quickly that Jesus himself reveals that there will always ultimately be two reactions to him and to his teaching. And so this morning, as we look at this first and very famous parable, there will be a slightly sobering note for us, a slightly humbling note, that people will reject Jesus' words. But most of all, we will find deep encouragement, those of us who do know and love Jesus, to keep going in carefully hearing those words and confidently sharing them, knowing that Jesus' words are endlessly and abundantly fruitful in our lives and in the lives of many, even many who have yet to encounter them. 
So you'll see, we'll look at this parable under two main headings then, and then we'll look at two big implications together. The first heading, Jesus' words are words which divide. And to notice that, we're going to jump into the middle of this parable. You'll have seen, as I read it, that we have the parable and the explanation. And in between those two things, we've got this little episode where the disciples ask Jesus about the parable. And as we jump into those verses, verses 10 to 17, we see there a surprising purpose to the parables that's revealed. I don't know about you, but when I was at Sunday school, uh, I was told that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And even just last week, reading a children's Bible with Billy, uh, I read the line that parables, Jesus told parables to help people understand what God and heaven are like. And that's a good enough definition. Uh, in fact, even in Matthew 13, we see Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is like. And so we are learning things about God, about heaven, about God's purposes in these parables earthly story, heavenly meaning, helping people understand. But let's just compare that definition with what we read in verses 10 and 11. The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That's just one of, if you read over the whole chapter, what we see are many divisions in Matthew 13. Verse 1 tells us that the action takes place out of the house. Later we go back into the house. That's also shorthand for teaching the crowds and teaching his disciples, so big groups of people, small select group of followers. Later in the chapter we find that there are weeds and there's wheat. There are bad fish, there are good fish. Here there are people who have been given knowledge of the secrets of heaven and those who have not been given knowledge. So all the way through then, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us through them that there is a smaller group of insiders who love his words, who understand his teaching, and there are many, many others who will despise it and reject it. In that sense then, Jesus' words, they're not just divisive because there will be different opinions on them. I went to see Star Wars The Last Jedi here in St. Andrews when it came out. That is a divisive film that split the Star Wars fan base, as I'm sure you'll all be intimately familiar with. Jesus' words are not divisive like a divisive film. This is not just different blog posts dissecting different parts of a film. Now, the surprising thing here is that the purpose of these parables is to divide and to divide for judgment. Verse 12, for the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Jesus speaks in parables not to help loads of people understand, but precisely because there are people who do not understand what he's saying, who will not understand what he's saying. There are some, graciously, to whom understanding will be given, but there are many more whose faithlessness whose disbelief will only be compounded and confirmed even as they hear and hate what Jesus has to say. 
of all the gospel accounts, Matthew is the biggest one on showing us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. And we see just another example here. Isaiah speaks of a time in the history of God's people where they presume on their status before God. They think they know him. And so they fail to really hear the warnings that he sends them through his prophets. Here's Jesus saying, that's what's going on today in this generation around me. People who think they're the true people of God feel and refuse to hear what the one sent from God has to say to them. And actually the true people of God are those who do hear and receive my words with joy. I don't know what you make of all that. There's a lot to take in there. But I, I suppose that one thing it does is it does right away with any notion that Jesus is some sort of chilled out hippie saying live and let live, take or leave my words. It doesn't really matter. And it also does away with any notion we might have of Jesus as a good moral teacher. This is just one example of the kinds of things that C.S. Lewis described as evidence that if Jesus wasn't God incarnate, then his teaching wouldn't be good. It would be staggeringly arrogant and deeply offensive. Imagine saying that there's judgment awaiting anyone who does not listen to your words. If you or I said it, we'd be locked up and cancelled. Jesus says it because Jesus is God's son with authority. And already we're starting to see then some chastening things for us and also some reassurance. You see, it is quite chastening and it is humbling to realize that no matter what we do, no matter how carefully we explain the gospel, no matter how big name the celebrity speaker we get for our event is, no matter how flashy or intricate the flyers look for the event that we run, there will still be people who hate and reject Jesus' words, no matter what we do. After all, I think we can be quite sure, can't we, that Jesus' own presentation of the gospel was probably quite good, was probably better than mine or Rico Tice's or any other big-name celebrity preacher. And his gospel was also accompanied by miraculous displays of power in a way that ours will never be. And yet people still rejected it. They still rejected him. And so they still will. No matter how good the presentation of the gospel may seem to us, people will despise and reject it. That's humbling. And it's chastening. And I take it, it should drive us to prayer. There's also a reassuring note, though, an encouragement of the true wonder of this parable. That's highlighted for us in this section, too. Jesus says there will be people who reject his words and his teaching. It's always been the case. But then turning to his disciples in verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. These verses remind us that we should read this parable, and as well as being rightly humbled and chastened, driven to prayer for God to open the eyes of many to see and ears of many to hear, what should also drive us to think, I, if I am someone who knows and loves Jesus, I am someone who is truly, abundantly, and richly 
blessed. That brings us to our second main heading this morning. As well as being words which divide, Jesus' words are words which bear fruit. That's the second thing I want to focus our attention on. You see, one could look at this parable and think that the waiting seems quite discouraging. I have actually heard this parable taught on as this is showing us that uh, we will have a 75% rejection rate as we go out preaching the gospel, and we should only expect 25% of people to hear it gladly. Uh, actually, who among us wouldn't love to see 25% of our evangelistic efforts uh, leading to people knowing Jesus? I think my hit rate is a lot less than that. That would be great if that's what we were learning. But I think there's something slightly different going on here, though. Because remember, this is a a chapter all about division. There may be three forms of unfruitfulness in the parable, but ultimately they all amount to the same thing. So let's look at some of them in turn. We've got the seed that's sown among the path. And in verse 19, Jesus explains that saying, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. It's a response that we see in the Gospels. We might think of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who seem like they really should understand what Jesus is saying, but it's almost as if they're willfully blind to what he's saying in front of them. It's like Jesus' words are being snatched away before they have any chance to pierce the heart. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the world around us too. Think of that friend, I'm sure we all have one, who hears a clear, really powerful, really relevant gospel talk, the perfect amount of illustrations and jokes and emotional appeals to the heart, which explains all of the questions they've been asking us completely adequately. And and we're sitting thinking, this is it. This is the moment that it's all going to fall into place for them. And we turn to them afterwards and say, what did you think of that? And they say, it was nice. Guy's got a good way with words like the joke we told about Star Wars, but it's not really for me. We find ourselves asking the question, why? But Jesus would say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when that happens. Satan himself is at work to prevent right hearing of Jesus' words. There is a spiritual battle being waged, even within a room like this or a CU marquee, as as the gospel is being proclaimed. There is an enemy who loves to snatch away what is being sown, and hard hearts which are only too glad to have it snatched away from them. It's a seed sown along the path. We also learn about the rocky ground, and Jesus explains that in verse 20, as the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately he falls away. Again, something we see in the Gospels. You might think most obviously of the crowds who shout Hosanna, praising God as Jesus enters Jerusalem, but who abandon him only a few days later. We might think of the rich young ruler who seems close to the kingdom of God but goes away sorrowful when he realizes how much it will actually cost him to love and follow Jesus. I think of a friend of mine who found Jesus through the witness of his mum and started excitedly, excitedly talking to me about how after a few difficult years, grace had transformed his life 
I was so excited now to have this bedrock to know Jesus, to love and, and follow him. But then when the reality hit of his new social status among friends from sports teams, a lot of saying no to fun things that everyone else is doing, a lot of stick for his newfound faith, it clicked again and suddenly became the most avowed, angry atheist, mocking and belittling anyone for having any faith. I'm sure, sadly, we can all think of similar examples in our own lives. And we ask the question, why when that happens? And again, Jesus would say, don't be surprised. Because people can seem to have a, a joyful understanding and appreciation for my words, but their roots are shallow. And as soon as the hard things of the world come up against the gospel, well, that shallowness, that lack of fruit is revealed just seems like too costly a thing. Then we also learn about the seed that's sown among the thorns. And Jesus explains that to us in verse 22. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. This is a particularly interesting and challenging one because it drives us to think of someone who is at church every week, twice a week, their whole life, who attends Bible studies, who eventually leads a Bible study, prays publicly, stacks chairs, serves coffee, all the things that we associate with real and thriving and living faith, and yet one day gets offered a promotion at work. That's a good and godly thing to provide more for your family, so he accepts it then gradually finds his opportunities for serving church get less and less. He can't lead the home group anymore. In the end, he can't come to the home group anymore. He's working too hard. And actually, Sundays are proving a bit stressful now. They're expecting me to be in Sundays too. I'll listen to it online. Actually, I don't really have time for that anymore. Eventually, before too long, decides that money is far more important and following and loving Jesus. Again, that's a sad story I encountered in a church I used to belong to. I'm sure we can think of other sad stories like us, which, like it, which would drive us to think, why? Why is this happening? Once again, in a sobering way, Jesus says, don't be surprised. There will be people, people who look very similar to those who hear and love my word, but ultimately, sometimes over years and years, are proven to be fruitless. We encounter these attitudes in the Gospels, we encounter them in our own lives, and it's always hard and discouraging when we do encounter those things. We naturally find ourselves on our knees praying why, asking for God's help, especially, especially when we see those responses from people we love and care about. Not just people who maybe tick a box that we don't like at a CU event, but people who we know and love, who seem diametrically opposed to our faith or even walk away from it. It is hard. It is sobering to realize that Jesus says these things shouldn't take us by surprise. But there is also a note of encouragement in that for us. As one commentator says, the wonder of this parable is not that some do not produce fruit, but that any do. And so more positively, I want us to see that we're being reminded here 
that it really does take a miracle to fully understand and take to heart what Jesus says. It really does take a miracle. That's quite freeing for us as we think of our own efforts in sharing the words of Jesus. It's also wonderfully encouraging for us as we look at what happens when people, people like us do hear and receive his words with joy, a bumper, fruitful harvest. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. To those who, by God's grace, are inside, but for those to whom understanding has been graciously given to, to you and to me if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, well, we have the assurance here that Jesus' words grow abundantly and produce a bumper crop of fruit. Fruit as shorthand for all of the things that God, by his Holy Spirit, does in the hearts and the lives of his people. Fruit like a, a growing love for God, a growing love for God's people, which is cultivated and fostered over years and years. Fruit like a deeper desire to, to be in God's word, to understand it more deeply, to treasure it more fully. Fruit like a life of humble and thank-filled service, which the Lord sustains us in even when it's difficult. It's the kind of wonderful fruit that we're assured that God is at work to bear and to grow in those of us who know and love Jesus, who hear and receive his words with joy. And that brings us then to our two big implications as we move towards a close. And the first is careful hearing. And it's important to mention that one because this parable does have a lot to say to us, of course, in how we sow how we spread Jesus' words in our evangelism. But I find it interesting, as, as I read it again, I haven't quite noticed this before, nowhere does Jesus say, go therefore and do likewise, go and sow like the sower. But he does say quite a few times, hear. In verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. In verse 17, many prophets and righteous people long to hear what you hear. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. This is a part of God's word which God's people should be careful to hear. Before we go and do anything, we carefully hear Jesus' words. That's where we start. And I suppose if we've just been thinking about what the fruitful life looks like for those who hear and receive Jesus' words, isn't that exactly what we want to do? Before we become people of action, we want to sit and hear from our Lord. I take it it's possible to be genuinely on the inside, to genuinely know and love and follow Jesus, to trust in him alone for our salvation, but to still need to heed the warnings of this parable. After all, being unreceptive, having a shallow understanding, being preoccupied with the world, I think we'd love it if those things were just issues in the world, but if your heart is anything like mine, we'll know that there are issues that are present for us as well. Again, one commentator says, the parable's division between fruitful and unfruitful doesn't necessarily correspond to the limits of church membership. So there are challenges for us who do know Jesus here. Will I keep hearing and receiving the words of Jesus with joy? Even when I find that those words are challenging me, 
to die to my selfishness, to die to my sin, to grow in godliness at cost, even when they're challenging me to give up some comfortable patterns of behavior, even if they're challenging me to show sacrificial love and service to people who I don't naturally find myself getting on with? Will I receive the words of Jesus with joy then? Will I keep hearing and receiving the words of Jesus with joy even when they lead me to miss out on some of the treasures of the world? Even when they lead me to face mockery or even downright hatred from people I respect and love and care about? Well, I keep hearing and receiving the words of Jesus with joy, knowing and fully believing that this and nothing else is the key to the fruitful, growing Christian life, that it really is the, the work of a lifetime, the work of years, the, the hard and careful, regular work of hearing God's word taught simply and plainly, and there's no silver bullet, no easy ticket, no fast-track route to knowing and growing more in the Christian life? Will I keep hearing and receiving those words patiently, enduringly, over the course of a life lived for God? Will I keep hearing and receiving those words and allow them, by God's grace, allow them to yield fruit in that life of service and obedience and devotion? Will I keep him, Jesus, the one revealed in God's word as the deepest treasure of my heart, no matter what. I hope that this parable gives us the answer that this is what we're compelled to do when we see just how powerful and abundantly fruitful Jesus' words are. How on earth could we go anywhere else? Why on earth would we want to hear anything or anyone else? Second implication, though, as well as careful hearing. This should lead us to confident sowing. And, and we could view this whole thing as a wasteful exercise. Why, why so much seed being sown if a lot of it ends up ultimately not producing fruit? Well, the point seems to be there's nothing wrong with the fruit, with the seed itself. We are reminded here that Jesus' words do have real power, real power to bear fruit and to grow when they fall on the right soil. People in this room may or may not be familiar with Teddy Sheringham. He was a, a striker in the 80s and 90s. He played into quite late in his life. He was in his 40s when he, when he gave up playing football. He was very much your classic English striker. Tall, could head the ball in, didn't have much flair or skill. Quite late in his career, he went to Tottenham Hotspur. And uh, this young academy uh, prospect, this young kind of uh, flair-filled, talented young player was training with Teddy Sheringham. And... He was showing off his skills, he was doing stepovers, he was doing keepy-uppies, he bounced the ball off the crossbar, chested it down, controlled it, passed it to Sheringham and said, I've shown you what I can do, why don't you show me what you can do? And Sheringham takes the ball and he goes over to the goal, he sets it about a centimeter out of the line, pokes it with his toe and said, I can do that every single week. The point being that flair is all well and good in football, but goals win matches. Even someone like Sheringham is a key player, not because he's exciting to watch, but because he scores goals in a simple and plodding way. In our sharing of the gospel, it is good to think about how we are creative, 
and engaging. It is good to think about how we are careful in explaining and sharing the words of Jesus. But ultimately, we do not need to look for anything flashy and impressive to draw people in. We just need to keep plodding along, sowing the word among one another and out in the world. You see, Jesus' words are really powerful. They are powerful enough to confront sin. They are powerful enough to encourage the flagging and to bind up the brokenhearted, even when I can't think of a single wise or insightful or helpful thing to say. Jesus' words are powerful. Jesus' words are powerful enough to work through even a weak and faltering presentation of the gospel where I get some illustrations wrong or I forget the Bible verse I'm thinking of. Jesus' words are powerful enough to grow his people and to work through the preaching of his word, even when preachers distract everybody by stacking their sermons full of references to Star Wars or football or his baby. That's how powerful Jesus' words are. In spite of preaching like that, he uses his words to grow and to sustain his people. Jesus' words are abundantly and enduringly powerful. They will produce division. Yes, they will be met with rejection. But we should have every confidence that they are powerful enough to yield abundant fruit and so strengthen to go on in our sowing of those words among one another, confident that God is at work to shape and to grow us and sowing those words among those who have yet to hear them confident that God is at work to produce a bumper and fruitful harvest, not because we are anything to talk about, but because Jesus' words are enduringly, abundantly fruitful. Let me lead us in prayer then as we close. Father God, we thank you for the reality that Jesus' words divide. And we do long and pray that you would give understanding to more people who we know and love, people in this town who we've yet to encounter, we pray you would draw more to hear and receive them with joy. And we give you thanks that we can be confident that Jesus' words are abundantly fruitful. So give us confidence, we pray, that you would be at work to bear fruit in and through us as we abide in the words of Jesus among one another. And give us confidence to sow them excitedly with many who we will encounter here, with many who will encounter in Dingwall and all over this land. We pray you'll be at work to bear fruit and to grow your kingdom as the gospel goes out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ultimately, one of the reasons why Jesus' words are so fruitful is that they attest to him.